shortly. There we go. Welcome to everybody. It's good to see all of you. Even the ones I can't see that happen to be online. Well, let's get after it. Why don't we do that? It's always fun to start because we'll see. <laughs> we shall see. So I do have a title for the message, and the title of this message is The City Rejoices. And it, I, I took this title from Proverbs 11, verse 10, and it will come up behind you, and it goes like this. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there is jubilation. And I think the NIV says, you know, when the righteous prosper. So the city rejoices. That's my title. And I'll hopefully have you understand a little bit more why I'm preaching about this. But I usually lay a little bit of groundwork. And I'm actually going to spend a little bit more time actually talking about the lead up to actually what I want to talk about. Because I actually think it's important. And it actually relates quite a bit to what we've been discussing here within Free Life Church for the last, I would say, six plus weeks. And I, quite frankly, don't want it to be lost. Every Sunday is a new Sunday, you get to hear a new sermon, and that's great, but I don't want you to forget what's already been said. And particularly, I think I, I do want to spend some time going over it again. And I'll explain that as I get to the end of that. So a couple of weeks ago, you know we just went through Easter, not a small event in religious circles. And, but prior to that, Clayton preached on Palm Sunday a fantastic message. It was a fantastic message. And if you haven't listened to it, go and do that as soon as this service is done. But the gist of the message, and I can't possibly reiterate all that was said, but if you know anything of Palm Sunday, you can imagine the picture in your mind of a city rejoicing. A city literally in the entirety rejoicing because they thought their king had come. They believed that the prophecies had been fulfilled and this man, Jesus, the promised Messiah, was the king who was going to restore the kingdom in their minds a political kingdom it was an entirely a misconception but the picture nonetheless of what actually transpired is all too true in reflecting the verse that i just mentioned in proverbs chapter 11 verse 10 see they thought they were the chosen the righteous and their messiah had now come and now it is going to go well with us because the Roman Empire, which was subjugating you know, their nation, was going to be vanquished, the wicked by analogy. They were going to be perishing, and the righteous would now rise. And for that reason, you can easily understand why the city would have rejoiced, because they thought their king had come. It's an amazing thought to even consider a city united in joy because all of their hopes, their dreams, are now about to be fulfilled. The city. And as I said, they expected a political Messiah, and when Jesus was now being questioned by Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate asked him, 
you know, are you a king of the Jews? And Jesus' response to him was the prelude to the crushing plot twist for the city. In John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. That's an interesting little statement right there. That too often we probably reflect that in our attitude of what we think the fight actually is about. My servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7 says this. This is the plot twist that nobody foresaw, and I mean nobody. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And that mystery is spoken of in Colossians 1.27, which is Christ in you, the hope of the glory. So what everybody was anticipating with joy, the city now rejoicing of a political kingdom they imagined being ushered in was entirely not so because Jesus' kingdom was not of this world and that kingdom was a spiritual one. And it was missed in the entirety and the city went from rejoicing to something far less than that. Actually participating to one in the call to crucify him. Palm Sunday. So Easter, we know, Ken spoke last week on Easter, resurrection life. No small day, not because it's a religious one. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'm going a little bit of a review, but this is really important. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And Ken made this little statement. I wrote it down. I thought it was really good. He said, there is no dominion of the kingdom without the resurrection. Let me say that again. I loved it so much. Thank you, Ken. There is no dominion of the kingdom without the resurrection. And he quoted this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, futile. Say it in whatever accent you want, but it's not good. You are still in your sins. That's a problem. Horrific. Indeed. Because as Christ has not risen, Scripture is broken, prophecies were not fulfilled, and Jesus' very claims about himself were wrong. That's Easter. Even before that, there were a number of weeks which we spoke about the precious blood of Jesus. Colossians 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of sins. Sometimes this verse gets quoted a little bit incorrectly. People refer to it as the kingdom of darkness. That's not correct. It's the power of darkness. That word is exousia, which is authority, which Satan got from Adam. Delivered to Satan. Such that Adam now became the slave to whom he obeyed. The kingdom is a very different word. It's basilia, which is the royal rule and reign of God. So you were transferred and conveyed from the power and the authority of darkness into the royal rule and reign of God. That's what the word says. And all of this was accomplished through his blood, his precious blood, which Jesus himself, when he was raised and resurrected, sprinkled that blood in the true tabernacle in the high court of heaven for all time as your high priest in the order of Melchizedek, sprinkled before the very mercy seat of God in the throne room, such that for all who believe over you, it is a declaration now of righteousness. That's you. Justified for all time, regardless of what you think, of what you believe, other than in faith in the blood, that it is now imputed to you righteousness. It is a declaration for all time, unchanging, that is you. That's what we've been talking about for the last six plus weeks. And if you could repeat this to me, if you could repeat this to your spouse, to your peers, I guarantee you will not be the same. So you can understand now when I say, I don't want to rush on too quickly and leave all of this behind because this was just what was conveyed in this last season. Jesus, when he was here on earth, had a gospel, and that gospel, which is good news, was of the kingdom. He kept speaking about the kingdom. It's not of this world. That's what he said to Pontius Pilate. And see, the, you have to understand now that the kingdom we are not speaking of, and it's very easy to hear what I'm about to now say and think about this world, but I'm not talking about this world. What I'm speaking of now in transition to what I really want to talk about in the city rejoicing is now about the kingdom of heaven, not anything earthly. Oh, it impacts earthly, to be sure. You see, the king's domain, which is what kingdom really represents in terms of the actual word itself, it extends from the heavenly throne. It's not complicated, I think. But you have to understand the concept of a king, which we don't have, because we don't have a king. We have a president. In the third heaven where the throne room of God exists, his will is unopposed. It is his word that goes, and there is zero opposition. None. And we are ambassadors of that kingdom here in this world, on this earth, where his will is opposed. And now we have a conflict. And you're right to ask, based on everything I've said, which is a repeat of the last season, 
What does this mean? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to think? How does this actually work? That's a great question, which I hope to answer. We've heard about the kingdom of God preached in so many different ways, and quite frankly, a lot of it is helpful, but doesn't actually complete the picture, because it's true, but not in its fullness. You see, the kingdom of God, we understand, the kingdom of God is within you. Romans 14, 17 says that for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of God in you, which is that mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, not God with man, but God in man, residing in man. That's a pretty radical shift. So you understand that the spirit of God is resident within you if you believe and now justified. And to be sure, there are massive changes and benefits of the Spirit of God taking up residence in you because the very thought pattern of your life ought to change and become in greater conformance with the will of God via the Spirit. And all that is true. But that's not the full extent of it. See, the kingdom has an impact not only within you, but external to you. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit colloquially about this without trying to teach you about it, but have you understand a little bit of who we are and what we believe with respect to the kingdom. You know, every place has an atmosphere. Your home has an atmosphere. Yeah, it does. And there is an atmosphere that embodies oftentimes the spirit of the people in that place. And the only question is which spirits, right? I'm not trying to get you concerned or nervous or make any indictments. I'm not saying that at all. But to illustrate the point, you see, I would hope that in your home you would treasure something of peace just as an example. See, Matthew 10, verse 13, these are not unbiblical concepts. It says, if that, this is when the sending out of the 12, and it says, if the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it, but if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Don't be that guy or gal. So peace, there's an element of it in the atmosphere that is discernible. I'd like to think my house embodies a spirit of peace within it, and I actively try and enforce that. I do know when chaos enters my house and disturbs the peace in my house. But peace is just an example of the practical outworking of something from within, but now actually occurs externally. I would hope that when you actually enter this room and this building, that there's something that's changed in you. And I would characterize that 
and this is something that we have actively prayed about for as long as this church has been in existence, is that when people enter into the atmosphere of where ministry is occurring, which is this body, that there would be an opportunity for them to experience God. And this might sound pretty theoretical to you, but it becomes very practical. And now let me give you another example, which is why I'm talking to you somewhat colloquially about this. And I've actually said this before. I'm going to use this example again to illustrate the point. You know, my son went to the uh, life group at the Crothers. He was imp impacted by that, as many are. And he came back and he said to me, you know, Dad, help me, like, grow in intimacy with God. It's not your, I, I don't know if you're going to find that in the parenting handbook somewhere, but that was his request. And it was prompted by what he had experienced of the things of God and realized that he wanted more, which God always honors, by the way. So it's in my house, it's in my living room, and he came in, and I said, oh, okay. I said, sit down. And I wish I could tell you I had really spiritual things to say. I did not. But I just started to talk to him. Because in my mind, I had this picture or an idea. It was just a, I trust it's the Spirit of God thing. And I just started to talk to him. Not even necessarily about spiritual things, but I just started to talk. And, I, and then after about a minute, I paused. And I said, so how do you feel? And he says, I feel pretty good. And I said, now let me explain, because you asked me how to grow in intimacy of God, with God. And I told him this. What I did by speaking was to ensure that there was only one voice that you were hearing. Only one. See, typically... There are many voices that are clamoring for your attention, influencing, trying to produce anxiety. That's why taking thoughts captive is so crucial. But I explained to him in that moment, I said, all I did was to ensure that there was only one voice that you were hearing and no other. And that is a picture of what we endeavor to accomplish here. Such that when you come into this building, and this is an active point of prayer, and of faith and of active participation for us to create as an environment that when people enter in here, there is only one voice that they hear, and that's God. It's not man. You didn't come here to see a man or listen to a man. It is God. And if that is the voice, you, you see, so easy for us, and I'm human just like all of you, I get distracted in... Anything and everything that you can imagine vying for your attention, let alone the things that are really difficult to deal with, such as anxiety and fear, let alone those things. I'm just talking ordinary things. And if you were to enter into an environment such that all of those voices now grow silent and you're only able to hear the Spirit of God speaking into your life, your situation, of His love, I would think you would imagine that you would feel very different. That's an atmosphere of the place. That is 
the royal rule and reign of God now impacting you in an atmosphere. That's what it looks like. That's what we want. You see, if you only heard the one voice and the one spirit of God speaking to you, and the spirit of God may something to you, say to you something like this, I'm going to do this for you. And an atmosphere of faith is so easily obtainable to you for you just to believe what God has already said. There's no counseling. You can feel that in a place. Peace, faith, adoration, love, joy. Proverbs 11.10, to repeat, getting back to there now. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. So you ought to ask yourself the question, as I did, what does it look like when it goes well with the righteous? What does it look like? I'm not just talking about the normal, natural things of, well, everything's working out. Of course, that's true. But let's talk about it from a kingdom perspective of that kingdom sourced from his throne. I could say it broadly that if it's going well with the righteous, righteous, any opposition to his will has been overcome. I think I can say that as a general proposition, and I hope you'll accept that, because we're not having a debate. I have the microphone. <laughs> opposition to his will has been overcome. That's what it looks like in a very general sense. More practically, righteousness and justice are present. Why would I say that? This is emanating from the throne room of God, whereas will is unopposed. Psalm 89, 14, you know these verses. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. The very character and nature of God in his, the royal rule and reign of God is founded on righteousness and justice. That's like a pair, it's like twins. You see it all over the place. Psalm 97, too, said this, almost the same thing. You know, Proverbs 8.20, this one is interesting. I traverse the way of righteousness, speaking of wisdom, in the midst of the paths of justice. Righteousness and justice. To Abraham, who you would, should consider the father of your faith, Genesis 18:19, speaking of God's choice of Abraham. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Righteousness and injustice is a natural outflow of his throne. We talk about righteousness quite a bit, and you have imputed righteousness. We don't talk about justice very much. The world is, sadly. I will say this about the world, and not specifically about the issue of justice. 
is the world and the spirit of the world is extremely good at taking the things of God and co-opting it, hijacking it for their own use. It actually originated, if you believe, and you should, that righteousness and justice are the foundation of the very throne of God, then the no whole notion of justice cannot be in any way shaped by anything other than by God. And yet the world probably has a much more prominent voice in steering your very thoughts about what justice ought to look like, of when justice is being called for. And I pretty much guarantee to you, as soon as I use the word justice, what came into your mind were things of the world of what they're asking for of justice. And that proves my point, that it's been hijacked. And I'm not here to debate what it is that the world is calling for in terms of justice. I'm here to explain to you what the justice of God is like. You see, I find it funny, personally, I may not sound like I'm being humorous right now, but this is my funny voice. <laughs> that was sort of a joke. Maybe my boys would say, no, that really is his funny voice. <laughs> see, the world calls for justice. But let me be very honest in my perspective of what they're called for. They're not actually really asking for justice. You see, if they were, see, nobody is really calling for justice because when the spotlight of examination is really turned down and justice is really going to come down, they will not be asking for justice. You know, Matthew 7, verse 1 says, Judge not that, you not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. It's not even talking about the law of God anymore. So whatever standard that you have that is considered right versus wrong is now going to be turned and applied to you, and you will be determined whether you now conform to that. A call for justice is a very scary thing. Because there is no part of your life that gets to be excluded from that spotlight. See, the justice of God in Genesis 18, verse 25, this is a little bit after Jesus or God is speaking to Abraham that you're going to do righteousness and justice. That's in a sense why I chose you, that you're going to direct your family after you. And this concept of justice is, quite frankly, difficult to even define. I looked up in dictionary. There's really not much that's actually concrete. But Genesis 18, verse 25 says this, Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous. This is speaking about Sodom, and the angels were going to go into Sodom and actually deliver justice because of the large outcry against the city. This is the context. Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? See, embodied in the concept of justice, as best as we can even understand that, is there is a sense of rightness or moral equity, if you will. But it's so hard to define, is it not? 
So I'm not so qualified, so I went with other people that probably were more qualified to talk about the justice of God. So A.W. Tozer, I'm going to read a section of A.W. Tozer, fantastic, in talking about the justice of God in the book, The Knowledge of the Holy. And this is what he had to say, which was instructive to me. He said, it is sometimes said, justice requires God to do this, referring to some act we know he will perform. This is an error of thinking as well as of speaking, for it postulates a principle of justice outside of God, which compels him to act in a certain way. Of course, there is no such principle. If there were, it would be superior to God, for only a superior power can compel obedience. Justice, when used of God, is a name we give to the way God is, nothing more. And when God acts justly, he is not doing so to conform to an independent criterion, but simply acting like himself in a given situation. In a sense, God is justice. The very fact that you stand today in boldness, in the very throne room of God, positionally justified, is because his justice demanded payment. And that payment was made by the blood of Jesus on your behalf. Righteousness is now imputed to you by the mercies and the love of God, and justice was perfectly satisfied. God is justice. Justice. That's who God is. That's what he embodies. Only he, he can be the one to be assured to do exactly what is right. There's a parable in Luke 18 of the persistent widow. And I'm not going to go through the whole parable. I'll read at least the first part of it. You'll see it up there. Because there is a significant point in this that I'm not even going to get to, but it's right there in front of you. And he says, then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. That's the point of the parable. But then he further clarifies elements of it, saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. I'm not going to, because of time, I'm not going to read the rest of it. Get justice for me from my adversary. Why am I talking about this? The city rejoices when it goes well with them. In Proverbs 28.12, it's a similar verse to Proverbs 11.10, and it says this, When the righteous rejoice, there is great glory. But when the wicked arise, men hide themselves. And let me talk about this in a, from a perspective of a city, from a community, from a body like Free Life Church. See, when injustice is commonplace, which is an offense to his throne, right? When injustice is commonplace, people retreat and hide. 
When justice is commonplace, indignation rises at the sight of injustice. What do I mean by that? One of the things I envision and we pray for, for this body, for this atmosphere, for this community that we have an opportunity to touch, is that when it goes well with the righteous, the will of God is not opposed. The will of God is not opposed. If that was all too commonplace in the reverse, that the will of God is always opposed and his will is never placed into effect, I can assure you that in, a, in effect, in the things of the spirit or in the spirit realm, people will retreat and hide. The attitude would be one of, what's the point? Nothing's going to change. And that would be the attitude amongst all of you. Yeah, I'm going to church on a Sunday, and I'm going to hear some stuff, but I mean, let's just be quite honest. What I see as being true of our experience in the things of God, it's not going to change because injustice is the rule of the day. That's what that verse is effectively saying. But now let's look at the other side, which is what we're actually after. If justice was indeed the rule of the day, and injustice were to come into the room, I would imagine that the level of indignation in you would rise to such a degree as how dare you enter this building? How dare you? Get out. Justice is the rule of the day here, and injustice will not reign. That's an attitude, and that's an atmosphere that will breed that attitude of indignation. Because the widow in that example was screaming out to this unjust judge, says, give me justice. Why? Because she actually believed he would deliver justice. Nobody asked for justice of one who is unable to deliver justice. God is justice. Years ago, this is now almost 20 years ago, I think, just to show you the power of indignation. I'm not here to be indignant about your actions. I'm talking about me now. So almost 20 years ago, we, were, we had bought a house not too long, not that, for this event. And, you know, we were young, didn't have much stuff. Our house was broken into was actually probably the worst idea ever by this thief. Number one, we didn't have much stuff to steal because we were kind of poor, house poor, as you would say. Didn't have much to steal, and he also got caught. That's the end of the story, which I, I knew you would want to know that. So after our house was broken, we, we finally figured out you know, like little random things are missing, you know, uh, an imprint of a shoe print, you know, in our bedroom, things like that. Yeah. He stole my golf clubs. They weren't even great golf clubs. They stole that. I said, they stole a lot. I said, they, it's like the worst return ever. And of course you got caught. But as I said, that, that's the end of the story. And it's more about how much we didn't have. 
rather than what they got. Anyway, so we finally figured out that our house was broken, and he actually had broken into a number of the neighbors' houses. I'm sure he got more stuff out of them. So a policeman is now in our kitchen. I can't remember if it was one or two policemen, but we had at least one policeman in our kitchen. You know, gun, badge, the whole deal. I mean, it's not an everyday occurrence, and my oldest son is just looking at the policeman. And this is not an everyday event. He's building Legos. He's looking at this policeman with a gun, and and we knew it was going to be a little unsettling. And you know, again, you can maybe go to the parenting handbook. You're probably not going to find what to do when you're broken into a policeman's now in your kitchen. Now you have to explain it to your son. That's probably not in there. And I'm not here to talk about how to parent. So after the policeman left, it's like you know, I probably should talk to my son. You know, because well, isn't that what parents are supposed to do? So after the policeman left, I had him come over and, and I started to talk to him. And this is what came out of my mouth. I didn't have this grand plan of, oh, I'm going to do this and he's going to be assured, he's going to feel comfortable, blah, blah, blah. There was much of that situation I could not explain. Much. And I said to him, you know, I don't know all that is going to happen. So I can tell you one thing. God is going to give me justice. That's what I told him. God is going to give me justice. Why did I say that? Because there is an element of indignation that rises up because this just is not right. And some perpetrator is going to pay. Because God is going to give me justice. I do believe that just speaking those words put in things in motion that led to his capture. God is justice. And the concept of justice here and what we're going after is that justice would become commonplace such that the level of indignation that you will feel when you see injustice raise its head will just be a natural response of this is not right. And when that becomes true, you can understand how the city will rejoice because it is going well with the righteous. Now we're going to close but I said all of that, it was built on a foundation of truth that has been spoken of and taught and I trust acquired by you in your position and the realities of the kingdom which is not of this world. And I did this because I felt that we're going to go after this. And I specifically want to pray for situations that may exist in your circumstance, either individually in your family, may have gone on for a while, where effectively a cry has risen up in you, say, God, give me justice. 
because I want to pray for that. It's not that complicated. If you have struggled in something that just needs to change and you're asking for justice, I'm asking you to stand because I'm going to pray. Nothing would delight me more than nobody standing, by the way. But if there is a situation that you need justice, because you'll know it, something in you say, this is just not right. And you don't have to do anything. Lord God, we delight in you. We glorify you. We lift you up. The royal rule and reign of God, your very kingdom from the throne room of God. And each of these situations represented of a cry asking for justice has gone forth to you. You are justice. And over each of these situations, regardless of circumstance, regardless of time, and I just say in the name of Jesus, I decree justice on the behalf of your people, your righteous ones. I decree justice, whatever stands opposed, whatever adversary has raised its head, whatever situation will not move, I say in the name of Jesus, move. Shift. You get out of the way now for the justice of God will now rain down. Let it be done. In the name of Jesus. Let your righteous ones rejoice for justice of who you are by your very nature will do what is right. So what stands opposed, I say move. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus and by the very blood of Jesus that has been sprinkled on our behalf. I give glory to you, O Lord. I give glory to you, O Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen.